Well, good morning, Trinity Church. It is good to be able to be together online today. For those of you who are joining in with the church-wide fast today, if you are feeling hungry already, the good news is we get to feast on God's word together this morning. So I really encourage you to lean in and hear what God has for us today. Thanks so much for doing the reading, Emily. Let me just try and um, sum up what's going on in that reading. So it was a long reading. Let me try and help you set the scene in your mind's eye so you can see what's going on. It'd be really helpful for you to have a Bible in front of you if you haven't got one already. And if you don't own a Bible, um, just encourage you on your phone or your laptop, whatever you're watching this on, open up a tab and just type into Google Mark 3 NIV. And that should take you to a website like Bible Gateway and you can follow the reading there. NIV is just the version that we're reading together today. So it'd be helpful for you to have a, a Bible in front of you. But here's the scene. Here in Mark chapter 3, we're entering into the, the second phase of Jesus's ministry in Galilee. You know, it's not just the local people who are, being, who are flocking to Jesus to see what's going on. Actually, Jesus's ministry is growing in influence. And actually, we can see here in, uh, in Mark 3, these huge crowds of people are flocking to Jesus from all across Galilee and all the surrounding areas. People are traveling for days on foot to come and see for themselves who this Jesus is. Jesus is causing quite a stir at this point in the ancient world. I mean, look at verse 8 with me. What is it that has captured the attention of all these people in the crowd? Verse 8 says, When they heard all he was doing. They had heard about the miraculous things Jesus was doing, how he was healing people, how he was casting demons out of people. They'd heard that he was an amazing miracle worker. And so they wanted a piece of that. They wanted to come and see what is this all about. And then there in verses 10 and 11, so many people wanted to be healed or so many people wanted to see their friends uh, rid of demonic influence in their life that they are here in this huge crowd fighting their way to the front, pushing their way to the front just to try and be near to Jesus. So this crowd, they knew Jesus's name. They knew that they wanted to be near to Jesus. And they knew that they even wanted to receive his help. But the reality is that sadly, no one at all, not a single soul in this whole crowd at this point in the story has any idea who Jesus truly is. And that's really one of the big points of the book of Mark. You know, along with the crowds, we today as the readers are constantly faced with the question, who is Jesus? You know, that's why we've called this series Introducing, because it is our hope that all of us will clearly see who Jesus is. Whether or not this is your first ever Bible talk, or whether or not this is your millionth Bible talk, our hope is that you will today clearly see who Jesus is. And so at the moment, these crowds, they're clueless. They have no idea who Jesus is. But bit by bit throughout Mark, Jesus is slowly going to reveal who he is, that he is indeed the Son of God, the one sent from heaven to come and rescue people from their sin and to bring them into God's family. And here in today's passage, Jesus is beginning to help this crowd and us with them see what it looks like 
to belong to God's family. That's the big point of today's message. But why am I saying that? Well, I'm saying that because of verse 20 on to the end of today's reading. And this is where we're going to be camping out today. We're going to be spending a lot of time in this bit of the text. Because Jesus's presence has caused such a stir that it's not just the crowds who are flocking to him. It's also caused a stir amongst two very specific groups of people. Jesus's own family and the teacher's of the law. And there is a sense in which Jesus's family and the teachers of the law operate a little bit like a family. You know, they share a, a, a shared um, cause, they share um, same values, there's a sense of loyalty to one another in these groups. And when it comes to Jesus, both of them would have had a sense of expectation of loyalty from Jesus. You know, Jesus's biological family, they shared a name, they shared a reputation, they shared association. And so the family expects Jesus to be loyal to them. And then you've got the teachers of the law, the Pharisees over here. Uh, they, they shared a religion, but Jesus, he's come from outside the system. And so they're very wary of him. And so both these groups, the biological family and the religious family, if you want to call them that, have come together to accuse Jesus, to rebuke him, and to essentially treat him like the outcast of the family. And I'm going to suggest to you today that you and I are not so different to these two groups. You know, if you're a Christian, if you're somebody who already belongs to the family of God, you know Jesus, well, you will still share some of the traits of these groups. And if you're not yet a Christian, the reality is, is that you could likely fit into one of these two groups. And so as we explore what it looks like to belong to God's family today, it's really helpful that we first examine ourselves and see what do our family traits say about us? What family traits are we sharing in? And this is our first point. We need to look out for the family trait. We all have family traits, right? Some of us probably love them more than others. Uh, before lockdown, do you remember that before lockdown when we could all hang out? Uh, before lockdown, when we were able to meet as a church, a number of us at Trinity, Trinity Church came from a church called City Church and we used to meet every week and worship together. And I loved that. And one of the things I loved was being able to be with people. I, I'm a people person. Um, and I used to love it when members of the church would bring family members to the service with them, not just because they're coming to hear about Jesus, but I love seeing uh, like similarities between people I know and love and their family members who I don't yet know. And uh, there was a bit of an incident uh, two years ago, which involved Sam Mannering from our church here at Trinity. She had brought her parents to church. I didn't see them come through the door together or anything like that. I just saw this couple, slightly older couple, and I saw this man and I knew straight away. I mean, Sam wasn't even in the room. I was like, that is Sam Mannering's dad. I can tell by the way he looks. I can tell by the way his, his mannerisms. And I went, I was so confident. I went straight over to him, put my hand out. I went, you must be Sam's dad. He went, yeah, I am Sam's dad. Sometimes the family trait is so strong. It's just, it's so obvious what family we come from. The traits we share say something about the family we belong to. 
And the way that Jesus's family are behaving here in this passage says something about their unified response to Jesus. They're in this together. Look at verses uh, 20 and 21 with me. It says, then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said, he is out of his mind. Jesus's family haven't traveled all this way and fought their way through this huge crowd to come and have a friendly cup of tea and catch up with their brother or son, Jesus. You know, this isn't a dinner party. This is more like a family intervention that's going on here. Look at verse 21. They went to take charge of him. The Greek verb here means to seize forcibly, or it can mean to, to control. In other parts of the Bible, it even means to master. You know, you can just imagine this group of uh, family members elbowing their way through the crowds, all chaotic and flustered, uh, trying to get to Jesus and just saying things like, don't listen to him. Don't worry about him. He's gone crazy. He's lost the plot. He doesn't speak on behalf of us. Uh, we're here to fix this mess. We're going to take him home and get this whole thing sorted. You know, the question for us today as we look at this family and as we explore our own family trait is, how often have you seen this family trait in your own response to Jesus? Because if we're honest, we can have this idea that we can somehow control Jesus. You know, we might try to control his words. So, you know, we open his word, the Bible, and we see the Bible says something that really goes against the grain, that goes against um, sex, sexuality, gender, and so we try to control that. You know, we say things like, this, is, this isn't relevant anymore. This, this was an old book. This is no longer historically relevant for us today. Don't listen to this bit of the Bible. The rest of it's good, but don't listen to this bit. We try to control Jesus's words. Or maybe we try to control his people, people in the church. You know, church does something that just isn't up to your standard or your preference. You know, maybe it's the style of worship and singing, or maybe it's something in the kids' ministry, or maybe it's just something as simple as the aesthetics on a Sunday. And you know, it's either my way or the highway, you think. Instead of submitting to God's people on these very small matters, you kick off, you make a scene. Maybe you even want to leave the church because things are out of your control. You want to try and control Jesus's people. Or maybe we try to control his spirit. You know, how often do we go about our day-to-day -day lives and honestly, we try to squash down the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our lives, the spirit of Christ in us. You know, when he prompts us to be more financially generous, when he prompts us to be more generous with our time or generous with our words. Or maybe the one we'd like to squash down the most is that call to radical evangelism. We say, don't be crazy, Jesus. You don't really want me to talk to my mates about you, do you? I can just be their friend, you know, relational evangelism. Do you realize how stupid I'll look if I start talking about a man who died and rose again? It'll be embarrassing. Just let me do it my way. We try to control the spirit. 
You know, each of us, in our own ways, we are each guilty of trying to control Jesus like his family does in this passage. We share in this family trait. And at its root, this is the family trait of unbelief. We don't believe Jesus is as good as he says he is. We don't believe he is as powerful as he says he is. We don't believe he actually knows what is best for us. And so we join in with the claim of Jesus's family. Jesus is crazy. He's better locked up at home than outside here embarrassing me. But that's not the only charge that was brought against Jesus this day, is it? His family brought one charge. The biological family here, the storyline gets interrupted by the religious family storyline. And what a claim these religious guys make. Look at verse 22 with me. They say, and the teachers of the law uh, who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, which is just another name for Satan, really. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. These religious people take quite a different approach to Jesus. You know, they do recognize that Jesus is powerful and extraordinary. They don't deny that he is an amazing miracle worker or that he has some sort of significant spiritual authority, but they credit it all to the work of Satan. Let's just be clear about something here. These Pharisees from Jerusalem, these religious bigwigs, uh, they were a force to be reckoned with in these days. What they said had a massive influence in the Jewish community. You know, they went, let's not have this in our head. They went a group of like crazy religious misfits. Um, like this guy I used to see in York regularly when I lived there. He was always out there on his own with a big piece of white paper saying, with a big date saying, this is the end of the world. And it was always like next month. And whenever that day arrived, he would just change the date and he'd stand up again. So now this is going to be the end of the world. You know, he, that's not what we have here. It wasn't some crazy group of isolated religious people. Uh, this, this was a group of people who the community listened to. And the teachers of the law in this community, what they said was good would be good. And whatever they deemed to be bad was bad. And these religious heavyweights from Jerusalem, which is a four days walk from where Jesus is now, Jerusalem being, you know, the epicenter of Israel's religious heritage, this, this group of, uh, of uh, teachers of the law have come down on a mission to condemn Jesus. They want to make it abundantly clear that Jesus is only able to do all these miraculous things, these amazing things, casting out demons, because he himself is possessed by the spirit of Satan. The family trait of unbelief exists here in this group of Pharisees as well. But there's a sense in which they are in a more dire place in their unbelief. Because whilst Jesus's biological family sought to control Jesus, the Pharisees are seeking to condemn Jesus. They want to publicly kill Jesus's authority and reputation. And as we see in the unfolding story of Mark, they began to plot the public murder 
of Jesus. How does Jesus, the Son of God, heaven's hero, respond to such a blasphemous claim from these religious men? Does he lash out? Does he stir up the crowds to turn on this group? No. He lovingly, graciously points out their grievous error by telling them a story. I love the kindness of Jesus here. He doesn't flip out. He doesn't condemn. He tells a story, a story that's full of grace. Can we see that? That is such grace in Jesus's response to these men. You know, here in verses 23 to 27, Jesus explains that if he was casting out demons by the power of Satan, then that would mean Satan is fighting himself. That doesn't make sense. You know, it, he, he tells this story, this parable of a family household. If a family household starts a fight amongst themselves, then it's the end of that family unit. Uh, similarly, if a civil war breaks out in a kingdom, then it's the end, it's the fall of that kingdom. And so if the devil is truly fighting the devil, then the good news is the devil's kingdom is coming to an end. So Jesus is very cleverly showing these Pharisees that whilst their labeling of where, who Jesus is and where he's drawing his power from is, is wildly incorrect, their assessment of what is going on is actually true. Satan's kingdom is crumbling before their eyes as Jesus advances God's kingdom through the power of his word and spirit. Jesus has come to tie up Satan, who is described in this short story as the strong man, there in verse 27. Jesus has come to rescue people who have been held captive by Satan, the strong man. You know, it's like a hostage situation. There are these people who've been captured by, a, by an evil person and there's no way of getting out. But Jesus is the stronger man. That's the heart of this story. That's the heart of Jesus's response to these Pharisees. Jesus is the stronger man who has come to overpower Satan, to set the hostages free moving them from the household of Satan and bringing them into God's family. In his grace, Jesus is extending the invitation of joining his family even to these group of blasphemous Pharisees. And we need to hear this today because many of us have blasphemed against Christ in our own lives. We have found ourselves, if we're honest, at times, standing in that crowd of Pharisees, pointing and shouting at Jesus, saying, who the hell do you think you are? With the Pharisees, we attribute the goodness and kindness of Jesus as though he was evil from hell itself. You know, in our sexuality... We say, Jesus, how dare you tell me what I can do with my body? Don't you care about my feelings? Don't you care about my pleasure? Your view of sex is evil. Or in our work life, 
Jesus, how dare you stop me from getting that job? That job that was going to make me happy and make everything better. Or in our family life, Jesus, how dare you let that beloved member of my family die in such an awful way? Jesus, who do you think you are? We share a family trait with these Pharisees, don't we? But what does Jesus say to blasphemers like these Pharisees and blasphemers like us? Verse 28, he says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. All our blasphemies can be forgiven if we cry out to Jesus, the stronger man. Jesus has come to release us from the blasphemous rule of sin that, that resides in each of us. He has come to fight Satan and the powers of Satan, ultimately crushing Satan's skull underfoot at the cross of Calvary. Friends, it wasn't weakness that was on display at the cross, but absolute power as Jesus bore the weight of our sin, our awful blasphemous sin against God. Our sin, our sin, our sin that was so heavy that we couldn't even take a sim single step towards God. Our sin, which acted like handcuffs when we were being held hostage by the powers of evil. But Jesus is the stronger man, the stronger man who bore our sin at the cross. And that sin crushed him. Yet it was in his death that Jesus gave a fatal blow to Satan and his powers. And it's in his resurrection that Jesus stands victorious over a defeated Satan. Do you see what measures Jesus has gone to to save you? And he says to these Pharisees and he says to us today, whatever blasphemies we have committed, they can be forgiven. And it's in this context that we must read verse 29. Uh, this is what some people call the unforgivable sin. Let me read it to you. Verse 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. In his grace, Jesus is giving these Pharisees a warning. They are so hardened in their unbelief that here they are accusing Jesus of being the very evil that he has come to destroy. And so Jesus is warning them and he's warning us today. He's warning these men that their souls are in danger of never being forgiven. These Pharisees are in a place of willful disobedience against God. They're not ignorant like the crowds. They're fighting Jesus. They're publicly condemning him, trying to squash him. So far, they've been completely unwilling to listen to Jesus, to allow him to speak. They are deliberately making Jesus into public enemy number one 
and they credit his righteousness to satanic influence and power. And Jesus is saying they are in danger of never reaching repentance. They are so willful in their rejection of Jesus that the spirit of God may not even bring them to a place of repentance. So what does that mean for us today? Well, it means that if you have heard the gospel, repent and believe today. Do not continue in the Pharisee family trait of willful disobedience against God. Because the warning is God may give us over to that sin to the point, to the degree that we no longer even feel shame associated with sin. If you have ever been convicted by the Spirit of God, then turn to Jesus in faith today and enjoy the family welcome. And this is our last and brief point. Enjoy the family welcome that you can experience in Jesus's family. After Jesus's interaction with this group of religious men, these Pharisees, the scene then returns again to Jesus's biological family. You see, word has now reached Jesus that his family are somewhere out there in the crowd forcing their way through. His mother and his brothers are here to try and bring Jesus home. And Jesus says something here which addresses his family, which addresses the Pharisees, which addresses the crowds, and which addresses us as the readers today. Look at verses 34 and 35 with me. Jesus says, uh, sorry, then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. We see here that Jesus is establishing a new family. His family isn't restricted to people uh, who are related to him by blood. His family isn't restricted to the, only to the religious elites. No, there's a key word here that I, I want you to see in verse 35. Jesus says, whoever. Jesus welcomes the whoever's into his family. Whoever does God's will. What is God's ultimate will and purpose for your life? I'm sure it's a question you've asked yourself before, and it's a question which there is pile and, piles and piles of books written about. I'm going to try and answer it in a sentence. What is God's ultimate will and purpose for your life? Put simply, the reason God made you and the reason God made me is that we might glorify him. How do we glorify him? Well, by submitting to his will and doing what pleases him. But how do we know what pleases God? By looking at Jesus. God's will is that we glorify him in all that we do as we become more and more like his son, Jesus, through the work of the spirit in our lives. You know, here at Trinity Church, we believe that the glory of God is paramount to everything that we do. Our vision is that we are a gospel community for North Manchester that gives, grows and partners for the glory of God. God's ultimate will for our lives is that we glorify him 
through joining his family by faith. So that means whoever you are, whatever you've done, however far you've wandered from Jesus, how, however grievous the most terrible sin you've ever committed, however long you've been wrestling, whether you are even wrestling going, have I committed the unforgivable sin? The invitation to join God's family is for you, whoever. Let me just begin to close this talk with this. These groups that have been surrounding Jesus throughout this bit of the story, none of them, none of them are too far gone from his grace. I mean, look at Jesus's family. Those who are saying he's crazy, he's embarrassing. We're here to publicly humiliate him and drag him home. What do we know about Jesus's family? Guess what? After the resurrection, Jesus's family members, or some of them, began to believe in Jesus. We've got James, the brother of Jesus. We've got Jude, the brother of Jesus. Both men who submitted to their brother Jesus as the son of God, who got involved in the life of the church, who became church leaders, whose writings are even in our Bibles today. Jesus's family were not too far away from his grace. The Pharisees, those, those ones who were blaspheming Jesus, accrediting his righteousness to satanic power. What do we know about Pharisees? Well, we see later on in the narrative there's a Pharisee called Nicodemus who sneaks out in the night to come and meet with Jesus because he can see there's something there. He wants to know, what is life? How can I be born again? Or Paul. Paul was a Pharisee, the most zealous. If Paul was in this crowd with these Pharisees this day, I can almost guarantee he'd be the one at the front of the line booting the door down. And what do we know about Paul? Paul calls himself a blasphemer in one of his letters. And yet, Paul became a servant of Jesus Christ, one who gave his life to Jesus, who enjoyed his grace, who faithfully served him to the end of his life. Not even this group of Pharisees were too far gone from the grace of Christ. We've got the crowds, this span of people who at the beginning of the story had no idea who Jesus was. And yet, after the Gospels in the book of Acts, what do we see? Huge crowds of people coming to believe on the name of Jesus. Look at the church today. We're a pretty big crowd of people. We are made up of the whoevers that Jesus is speaking about right here in this passage. And so the encouragement for us today, if you don't yet believe in Jesus, the invitation is there for you. If you do believe in Jesus and you have that family member, those friends who you just find yourself longing to know Jesus. Jesus says, whoever believes in me. So brother or sister, your family member might currently look like they are a million miles away from Jesus. But there is still hope. We must keep praying, we must keep asking God to soften their hearts and never assume that they are too far gone, that they've somehow committed the unforgivable sin. While there is breath in our lungs, there is hope to turn 
to Jesus by faith, receive his grace and join his family. So enjoy the family welcome. If you're somebody who becomes a Christian today, enjoy the family welcome. If you're somebody who's been a Christian for years, re-experience the family welcome again today. Jesus loves you and he is inviting you to come and enjoy family life with him, whoever you are. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus into our mess, into this world, so that we would no longer have to be isolated, living under the influence of evil, being bound up by the powers of sin. But God, in sending your son, you've sent heaven's hero to come and rescue us, the stronger man, to bring us out of our sin and into your family, a family where we can glorify you and enjoy you forever. And Lord, we pray that many people uh, here in North Manchester and beyond would put faith in you, would turn to you in repentance, God, that they would see you as the one who is welcoming them to come and enjoy true family life. Thank you, God, for your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.